Well, right there in the report itself, it tells you that the number one source of saturated fat in the American diet is dairy, right? So saturated fat is directly linked to heart disease risk, as is dietary cholesterol. And animal products are the only source of dietary cholesterol. So that's a double whammy right there for dairy and its connection to heart disease. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Time now for some real talk about dairy. That is the discussion today. This last week, the USDA spent its time listening to comments on the recently released scientific report that will shape the way that we eat for the next five years. Now, how's it going to do that? Because this report goes directly to what ultimately will be in the new dietary guidelines that will be out early next year. Now, here's the thing. Despite all of the evidence that we have, milk and cheese are still at the forefront of the conversation when it comes to what it is we should and should not be eating. We have all of this content that says, hey, really, you got to get this out of your diet because it's not good for you. And yet there are still recommendations that are being made in this report that say, Three servings a day is the way to go. So today we will be talking about this with dietitian Susan Levin. She has been in the thick of this food fight against dairy, really at the heart of these conversations with the USDA. So recently on the exam room live, I had the opportunity to speak with her about where things stand with dairy. And the interesting thing, if you haven't been following along with this yet, is the fact that not only are they still recommending, as of now, three servings of dairy per day, but they're also saying now that children as young as an infant should be including dairy in their diet. So what evidence actually is there supporting the fact that kids need milk to grow up big and strong? We're going to talk to Susan about that as well. We're going to be doing a deeper dive beyond just the milk does a body good claim because we really know that it kind of doesn't. And now we are also seeing immense interest in dairy alternatives. One research group, as a matter of fact, now expects dairy alternatives to become a $38 billion industry here in the U.S. by the year 2025. That's in less than five years. Currently, it's a $16.5 billion industry. So we're talking about more than double over the next five years, which ironically is when the next set of dietary guidelines would be due out. So we're going to be talking about that with Susan. Plus, she's going to be weighing in with her best options for cheese alternatives, yogurts alternatives, and milk alternatives. If you're not going to be drinking whole milk, skim milk, whatever milk, what plant milk is the healthiest? What would she recommend from a dietitian standpoint? We will ask her that as well. But most importantly in this conversation is the science. So you will be hearing about how dairy is connected to heart disease and prostate cancer and breast cancer and asthma. And you'll also be hearing from NBA champion John Sally about how dairy is adversely affecting the African-American community as we have real talk about dairy on the show today. And then, just to mix things up, we're going to welcome Dr. Nick Borgia to the exam room for the very first time. And he will be offering his five tips for eating healthy during the pandemic. Now, Dr. Borgia, he is based down in Miami, Florida, the hotspot for COVID-19. So we'll be talking to him about how food can really help lower the risk for all of those comorbidities that are making COVID this monster that it has become. So all of that is on tap on today's show, but we start right now with dietitian Susan Levin and some real talk about dairy. 
USDA is listening to comments on the recently released scientific report that will inevitably shape the new dietary guidelines that are due out next year. But like any good food fight, there are parties on both sides of the battle and there is still a long way to go. So I want to bring in dietitian Susan Levin now to bring us up to speed on where things stand following Tuesday's meeting. And Susan, I know that a lot of people were lending their voices to this discussion. So what did you hear on Tuesday? Yeah, so I heard about 75 (laughs) different people um, come in with their three minutes of uh, take on the scientific report that was issued by the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. This is their 800 plus page recommendation to the USDA and HHS on how the guidelines themselves should be updated later this or at the end of this year. Um, and it was fascinating. I have to say, I was not bored for a minute. We There were um, 10 uh, representatives, lobbyists from big ag. So that's just straight up beef, uh, meat, fish, egg, dairy, 10 of their uh, representatives who must be very well paid, I have to say, to say some of the things that they say um, were there to make their pitch for why meat should be um, endorsed, fit, whether it be fish, beef, pork, uh, they, they were all making their case. Um, not a very good, not a very scientific case, but probably more a financial case for their own pockets. Um, but on the plus side, there were 16 or more advocates for plant-based eating, the people that came in with the science, whether it be um, physicians committee or different doctors, nurses, dietitians who were saying this is very important to maintain their endorsement of plant-based eating. And a handful of people who came in with incredibly strong opinions about the continuation of the push for people to consume two to three cups of or two to three servings of dairy products per day, what something we deem an outdated, um, archaic, non-evidence-based recommendation. It's more just like an old habit. And we can't seem to let go of our endorsement of milk in this country, although other countries have decided finally Um, that they can no longer with a good conscience recommend a product that makes so many people sick, whether it be from lactose intolerance or from the other dangers of dairy. Um, So it was, it was great to hear all these opinions. Uh, It was interesting to hear industry and uh, recognize that they, they're always going to be there pushing for their products, whether it be, like I said, the actual lobbyists or representative from, Atkins or Nestle, they were there too. So we have we have a lot of work to do. We have to keep fighting the good fight. Well, let's let's talk about this. So you call the uh, you know the the dairy pushers, you know that science there a little bit archaic. It's it's outdated. But what is new potentially this year is the recommendation that the first time really this committee is recommending uh, recommending that infants, you know, from ages six to twelve months uh, consume dairy. Uh, same for uh, toddlers, twelve to twenty four months. So we kind of are trending in the direction that dairy isn't healthy. I mean, there's that increasing amount of science and we're going to get into that. But what evidence do they have other than this archaic science that we're talking about? What evidence do they have that children and dairy uh, is still a good idea, particularly now with children of such a young age? Yeah, so this was an interesting iteration of the guidelines because it's the very first time that the committee has addressed this age group, zero to 24 months. Never happened before. The guidelines have always been for two years of age and older. Um, So this will be the, when they come out, this will be the first guidelines that speaks to uh, infants, uh, zero to 24 months. And in the recommendations, and although it wasn't very explicit, the truth is if you give, if you give an inch, industry will take a mile. So the, the committee kind of put dairy uh, into, oh, first into its first foods category, let's say. So if you have a child Um, who turns six months. In general, the recommendation is that's about the time you want to be giving your your child uh, what's called like complementary foods or first foods, uh, in addition to ideally breast milk, but perhaps formula. Um, But those complementary foods, they kind of, you know, kind of listed out, yeah, fruits and vegetables and, hey, milk and um, as well. And I 
it, it raised it raised a flag. It raised a flag. Industries like heck yeah, right? But uh, the the um, American Academy of Pediatrics was there Tuesday as well to give comments saying, "Ho ho ho! Whoa, we don't recommend dairy." for children under the age of one because of all the risks associated with uh, cow's milk consumption at that age. It's a very tender age. Milk, look, milk is a tough product. We know this for, for just even adult. It can it can rip apart a stomach, especially a stomach that's never seen a foreign food like that before. Um, it can make iron less absorbable. It can possibly cause some, some bleeding of the, of the, tearing of the lining of the stomach, which can cause um, a loss of iron and make iron levels really lower. And iron's a big deal for a baby at six months. In fact, iron is the whole reason why you need to start feeding a baby typically around six months because they've depleted their stores from when they were in the womb. Um, But all that said, there's also this risk for type 1 diabetes. If you feed cow's milk to a child too early with that very tender stomach that's Possible, it's possible to leak those proteins into the blood, and that's where this possible autoimmune issue with, with um, for type that leads to type one diabetes with milk. Comes, so there's a lot of reasons you don't want to be given a baby uh, cow's milk, and they kind of have arbitrarily like maybe around the age one, um, a kid can handle that tough stuff. Of course, we would say, why would you ever do that? And there's no need to drink the cow's milk. Um, breast milk is best. Infant formula is the best alternative to breast milk, um, but certainly not cow's milk. So yeah, there's this, there's this problem where they've kind of lumped it into first foods and that's, that's just not a safe bet. And we're not alone. Obviously Um, this has been the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, rally cry for, for years, maybe decades. You don't want to be given a baby cow's milk that young. So when we're talking about the American Academy of Pediatrics, a lot of people may not be familiar with them. How much weight do they carry? We hear about these associations like that. or Are they on the level of, say, like the American Heart Association or the Alzheimer's Association? Like, Are they somebody that really this committee would be best to really sit up and pay attention to? Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, they, they are the group. For example, if I were to look under Kids Health on the CDC website, um, the CDC is going to talk about the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics. They they know their stuff. Um, so you really don't want to cross them. And even, at, you know, with all any of these organizations have their own issues. They take funding from 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 industry oftentimes, whether it's the American Heart Association, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, uh, the American uh, Associate Academy of Pediatrics is no different. But um, they are given even with that, even with as conservative as they may be in in my eyes and maybe not as progressive as I would like them to be, that should be pretty telling, right? That if they're like, no, 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 not for babies, um, then we should probably sit up and take notice. All right. So we, we've talked about kids. What about the recommendation now for adults? Is that remaining relatively unchanged? We heard that two to three servings per day. Uh, yeah. But then we also have heard that maybe we're backing away a little bit from it and taking a page slightly out of Canada's nutrition guidelines, or at least a step in that direction toward a more plant-based diet. Where do things stand as far as adults and dairy? Yeah, so they cited the last guidelines um, and the last scientific report, which suggested two to three servings for most adults of dairy products. um, And they don't seem to be wavering from that, which is really unfortunate. There was no mention of uh, people who can't digest dairy products. um, And that was, I think, a hugely missed opportunity. I think some of the committee members might cite the fact that they we're not given the opportunity really to dismantle some of the previous guidelines recommendations. This was sort of an interesting um, addition, I guess, of this process where they were given very specific questions to address and they were not allowed to, to go off track, if you will, or go off message from those questions. Um, So they might say, well, we weren't given the opportunity to do that. However, as it goes through, the filter of the USDA and the HHS, which is the next process, they could very easily say, um, you know what, we can't ignore that that this country has enough diversity, um, many cultures, many ethnicities, and many of whom cannot digest milk. So we need to address that the way Canada did, 
when they took milk off of um, as a way as like a, a required or recommended food group in and of itself, but rather it's just a protein source and they jammed it in with other protein sources. Now I will say at the very least, if I have to acknowledge some credit to the committee or to the guidelines themselves, they do say that there are alternatives to cow's milk, um, but they just don't make it obvious enough. I think they don't. And perhaps with um, that's probably for good measure on their part, because, you know, we have this conflict of interest, as always, where the USDA is trying to promote dairy on one hand, but also trying to make nutrition guidelines. So it's really hard for them to reconcile that conflict. So we're, I feel like we're always here in this place of like, oh, you can't just say what the facts are because you're so beholden to industry and dairy is such a big part of that. Well, let's let's stick with the alternatives there, because a growing number of people are looking behind that uh, beyond that whole milk does a body good claim. You know that too. use the term archaic. I'll bring that back again. It's it's starting to become that way. And we're seeing growing interest in those dairy alternatives. One research group expects that uh, the dairy alternative industry will grow to be a thirty eight billion dollar industry here in the U.S. uh, within the next five years. So how big of a jump are we talking between now and then? Well, currently, the dairy alternative industry is worth 16 and a half billion. So you're talking about more than double over the next five years. So from a dietitian standpoint, Susan, uh, what are some of your favorites for milk alternatives? Is one better than another? I, I mean, I think it really depends on what your goals are with um, your diet in general. So sometimes I might lean more towards the soy based milk alternatives because maybe someone is younger or elderly, isn't eating maybe as many calories as they should or need isn't or need a lot of calories and maybe they need more protein um, because of the growth that they're experiencing or to reduce muscle loss for people who are of older age. So then I might say, yeah, have the soy because that's going to pack in a lot of protein um, if they can digest soy and if they like it. Because I think there's so many alternatives out there now. We, we don't have to just stick with the one or two, you know, the one we we don't like um, uh, the least or whatever, right? Like you can really find the one you love. Um, now for most of us adults um, who don't necessarily, I, you know, we don't need the extra protein because we get far more than we already need. Um, we certainly don't need the extra fat and calories in a drink when all we really need to be drinking and all that's biologically required of us is water. So all of this to borrow a phrase from Dr. Barnard, all of these plant milk alternatives or cow's milk even is just, it's entertainment. It's not necessary. So If you are culturally inclined to drink a plant milk-like product, I really like the ones that are lower in fat. Um, So those would be interesting enough, despite their names. Those would be almond milk, cashew milk. I like the unsweetened versions that are also fortified with calcium. So in case you're not eating enough of your beans and greens, you're at least getting some source of calcium through your plant milk. Um, but, you know, and but that takes takes away the environmental argument. So if you have more of an environmental angle and you don't want to drink the almond milk, fine. Um, there, there are so many different varieties out there uh, that I really just in general just say, well, find the one that's got the lowest amount of fat um, and, and go for that one for adults, for most adults. Uh, really quickly before we move on, I want to ask you the same kind of question with cheese. We heard in the headlines they did a head-to-head comparison of beef alternatives to actual red meat. Uh, is there a plant-based cheese alternative that you would recommend more so than another? Yeah, so to date, I haven't really seen the really good-tasting cheese alternative or cream cheese or sour cream that is as low in fat as I would like to see um, because of just how fat really um, contributes to chronic disease, whether it be just inflammation in general, heart disease, diabetes, overweight, obesity, high blood pressure. So I'd really like, I ask most of my patients, if not all, to avoid those products. However, there's one product out there that I'm always like, but if you like nutritional yeast flakes, 
those make a, a, a pretty good cheese alternative in terms of making something in a recipe creamy or adding to your pasta. It does kind of, it does melt upon contact with heat. So it gets kind of a creamy thing going, but it doesn't have the fat. Unfortunately, I've yet to see the cheese alternative that, that is low in fat. Um, and I'm sure even if they invented it, I'm not sure how it would taste. But, you know, until then, I'm going to say just kind of avoid all of those. All right, Susan, I'm going to ask you to stick around for uh, just a little bit. I'm going to come back to you in a couple of minutes. But first, another thing that you may have heard recently is that dairy is racist. And you may be wondering, well, how is that even possible? Like, I don't like milk. I don't like cheese. But I don't see how they could be racist. Well, it's okay if you don't fully understand that. You know, a lot of us didn't initially, including myself. But on Tuesday, NBA champion John Sally explain this concept so eloquently during testimony to the advisory committee at the USDA. And I wanted to share his testimony with you, his full statement, so that you then can have a better understanding of how dairy is in fact racist. So let's hear now from John. Hi, my name is John Daly. I'm a four-time NBA champion who played with the Los Angeles Lakers, Detroit Pistons, Chicago Bulls. And I'm here on behalf of Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Now, as someone who follows a plant-based diet, I would first like to thank the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee um, for recognizing the benefits of fruits, vegetables, grains, beans, and for fighting heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and so many other diseases that plague America. But racial health disparities also plague America. And the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee suggests that Dietary guidelines recommend three servings of dairy a day would take a disproportionate uh, toll on the health of black Americans and other communities of color. Heart disease, prostate cancer, breast cancer, and asthma take the lives of black Americans as a disproportionate rate. And milk, cheese, yogurt, all dairy products increase the risk of these conditions. Research also shows that these dairy products have little to no benefit for the bones. And for many of us, a glass of milk can also mean a real serious bellyache. Lactose intolerance affects up to 80% of African-Americans, 95% of Asian-Americans, 80 to 100% of Native Americans, and up to 80% of Hispanic and Latino. That's why American Medical Association recently passed a resolution calling for dairy guidelines to indicate that dairy products are optional. So why would the U.S. government tell all Americans to drink three glasses of milk a day? It's pretty hard to stomach. Now, Canada recently updated nutritional guidelines by acknowledging that dairy is not necessary and demoted dairy products from a food group to an optional protein source. That's because we can get all the protein, calcium, potassium, magnesium we need from healthy plant-based foods. John Sally did a masterful job uh, explaining dairy and racism there, helping us to understand the negative health consequences of dairy, not just for black Americans, but other minorities as well. We're talking about at least, at least 80% of minorities being susceptible to the dangers of dairy, 80%. That's four out of every five people. And yet, and yet he was right to wonder why then it is continuing to be pushed in the American diet? It's a fair question. It is a fair question to ask. Now, I want to bring Susan back into the conversation. Susan, John specifically mentioned how milk and cheese increase the risk of certain chronic diseases. So I wanted to run through those with you quickly while we still have a couple of minutes. Uh, he began with heart disease uh, really quickly. What is the connection between dairy and cardiovascular disease? Well, right there in the report itself, it tells you that the number one source of saturated fat in the American diet is dairy, right? So saturated fat is directly linked to heart disease risk, as is dietary cholesterol, and animal products are the only source of dietary cholesterol. So that's a double whammy right there for dairy and its connection to heart disease. What about prostate cancer? That's another big one. Oh, yeah. So pretty, pretty good research out there and uh, mostly led by Harvard um, with its big um, observational studies and showing there's a connection between dairy 
uh, whether it be low fat milk or full fat milk, doesn't seem to really matter, but they play a role in prostate cancer development, um, whatever the dairy products are of your choice. Um, and prostate cancer is uh, very serious and deadly and it disproportionately affects people, uh, especially black and black men in this country. So that connection is important not to ignore. Specifically here for women now, primarily, let's talk about the connection between dairy and breast cancer. What do we know there? So this is kind of um, newer, newer research showing that uh, the big, big other big epidemiological studies, Adventist Health Study 2 recently reported a 50 percent increased risk of breast cancer among women consuming the most dairy compared with the least. And we also know that breast cancer mortality is higher among black women compared with white women. So these, these, these kind of data are important. And I think the more studies that come out that research breast cancer and dairy connection are going to be more relevant and hopefully get more attention as they get more traction. And lastly, let's end with uh, another one. I think that this one gets overlooked quite a bit, and that is asthma. So you talk about dairy and, and the asthma connection there. Put the pieces together for us. Mm -hmm. So there was a review published earlier this year, and it showed that dairy consumption can raise the risk for asthma um, or just worsen the symptoms of asthma. And African-Americans are three times, almost three times more likely to die from asthma-related causes than uh, our white people. So this, again, is another condition that we shouldn't be ignoring and recognizing that it disproportionately affects the outcome um, among Black Americans, I think, is even more critical. And this kind, you know, this kind of information keeps coming up, uh, especially under the cloud of COVID nineteen, where we see all these conditions that are um, disproportionately affecting people of color in this country, and thus raising their risk of dying from some new thing, COVID nineteen. Right. So all these things play a role. And, and we mentioned the fat and the cholesterol and heart disease and. Um, African-Americans are 20% more likely to die of heart disease. So, so again, we're seeing, you know, these are all conditions we all suffer from. Americans are just not that healthy, um, but it really affects uh, Black Americans more, especially you keep hearing like the rate of death is higher. We might all be getting, um, developing heart disease, but Black Americans are dying more of these diseases. And you can you know, why is it the, the, the care they're getting, the access to health care they're getting? I mean, there's so many reasons we have to dive into. But but the, the facts are we are we are in trouble and, and people of color are in the most trouble. And this is such a we could just acknowledge in the guidelines themselves with this this one thing. Let's do the small thing and just acknowledge the truth. If people can't digest this product, they shouldn't be consuming it. And we're going to be keeping a very close eye on how things are progressing with the USDA and these dietary guidelines. Again, they're not expected to be out until sometime early next year. But really, the fact that there is still this recommendation that there should be three servings of dairy every day is just, it's kind of mind boggling. It is a little bit mind boggling, especially given the fact that we heard John Sally talk about the connection between heart disease, prostate cancer, breast cancer, and asthma. And Susan, follow that up. If there's all of that, why is it being recommended? That's a million dollar question. That is a million dollar question. But let's turn the page now. For the very first time, I'm excited to have Dr. Nick Borgia come on the exam room. Now, he is based in Miami, Florida. And as we record this, Florida remains one of the hot spots for COVID-19 here in the U.S. So we will be talking to him and getting his five tips for eating healthy during the pandemic. And we're also going to hear from him what it's like to be a physician in this hot spot. How are people reacting? Are they eating more healthfully? And what are some of the commonalities, the common themes that he's noticing in COVID-19 patients? What is he picking up there? What is he discerning? We'll be hearing from him and how nutrition can play a key role in keeping somebody healthy, not just now during the pandemic, but for the rest of their life when COVID-19 
is well behind us. Here now, Dr. Nick Borcha. Joining us from Miami is the one and only Dr. Nick Borgia. Dr. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time, my friend. Thanks for having me, and it's good to see you, Chuck. The pleasure is all mine. Let's start with how the situation is with the pandemic in Miami. Obviously, we have heard that Florida is one of the hot spots in the country for the coronavirus, and Miami has kind of become ground zero for it. So how are things? Well, um, you know, as you described, we are not in a great situation here with respect to COVID-19. It has swept through all of the South Florida communities, in particular Miami. And like you mentioned at the top of your segment on uh, COVID-19, economic precarity is a big contributor down here to uh, the rise in cases. We have a large Hispanic population and that their, their poor access to medical care and uh, the economic precarity that many different communities experience down here in Miami is, is all contributing to a, a really difficult situation. And it's it's one that's I mean, there there's so much to work on there. You know, there is no one answer to get this thing back on track. But I'm curious from a physician standpoint, what has this entire experience been like for you uh, basically since the beginning of the pandemic and then more recently with the explosion of cases? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very difficult um, because we have all of the responsibilities that we uh normally have to provide uh, the standard of care for patients. And then we have the duress of having a lot of um, precautions that need to be taken and a lot of additional care that needs to be administered. So it's, it's definitely a difficult time. But the good news is that I think um, this pandemic is creating the opportunity for people to really see how important it is to protect their health on an ongoing basis. I've gotten a lot of interest from patients who want to be more proactive. And um, I hope that that is something that uh, doesn't just happen in my, you know, circumstance where my patients know that I'm very focused on lifestyle changes for uh, improving health, but uh, something that, that uh, becomes part of the culture in the United States and, and in the whole world. So. Before we get to your your tips, you kind of hinted at it here, you know, prevention there. I, I You put together five tips for healthy eating during the pandemic. It's absolutely critical. But I'm curious, has the behavior of people down in that area changed at all since uh, things really kind of started to, there was that massive outbreak down there? Have you seen people kind of like take a step back and not just analyze their health, but take those simple measures that we hear about a lot too, you know? wear masks, stay home, telecommute, all that good stuff. Things have changed a lot. Um, I think, you know, we, as medical providers, we've had to become very humble because the message that we've been putting out to the public has changed a lot very quickly. Um, For a long time, we assumed that uh, there was low transmission rates among um, younger kids. And so I, I think part of the second wave was a lot of younger individuals itching to get out and socialize, which is very understandable. But um, that definitely led to higher cases. We see down here in South Florida in particular, because that's the data I'm familiar with, that there's really high uh, case rates in younger individuals, the 20-year-olds, the 30-year-olds, and a lot of households that become infected, the, the first member of the family is the teenager, the 20-year-old. So um, we've, had, we've had a real issue with, um, with transmission from, from younger individuals. And now that we're to understanding and providing a clear message on how important it is to um, distance, to uh, stay outdoors, to not stay in confined spaces, we're seeing improvements, but unfortunately, um, that was a tough lesson to learn. Let's set up now your five tips by asking this question. Obviously, there is no diet that will make anybody immune from becoming infected here. But if people, by and large, were eating a healthier plant-based diet, do you think that we would uh, see hospitals be as overwhelmed as they are? 
Oh, that that's an easy question. Absolutely not, Chuck. You know, and um, we have a lot of great evidence of that. Um, we know, and this is this is even put out by the CDC. I think it's an underestimate for a couple of different reasons, but we know that um, you know simply having asthma increases your risk by 50% of, of needing to be hospitalized due to coronavirus infection. If you're obese, which is a BMI over 30, uh, your, your risk of needing to be hospitalized increases by 300%. And then, of course, if you're obese, super obese with a BMI over 40, that increases to 450%. So um, the risk of having not just a a severe infection, but needing to be hospitalized, needing to be intubated, um, and even dying of the coronavirus definitely increases um, with obesity, with hypertension, with um, stroke risk and other cardiovascular um, you know, symptoms. And all of that can be mitigated by plant-based diets. Um, Dr. Barnard has a great study um, showing that within 22 weeks, you can dramatically reverse heart disease, um, hypertension, obesity with a plant-based diet. So we know that plant-based nutrition is uh, a great way of reversing uh, this risk. Dr. Nick, I got to tell you, every time that I hear those stats about somebody who is super obese and their risk for COVID-19, I cringe because I immediately just flash back to being more than 400 pounds and think that if I were to have become infected at that weight, I would be in grave danger. And that scares the ever-living daylights out of me, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah, I believe it. And I think so many of us think, well, you know, I don't have to worry about it now because uh, I don't have to worry about starting, you know, to get healthy, to, to develop those healthy habits because, you know, I don't have a family history or I don't have diabetes or um, what have you, or, or maybe I'm not obese. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is, like I just mentioned, hypertension is, you know, the equivalent as far as a risk factor um, to being obese. And all of us carry some risk and we can all do so much right now to mitigate it. And, you know, something like the coronavirus comes around and, um, you know, people who haven't invested and taken the time yet, you know, it's it, now's the time because uh, like your, your segment earlier the week in the week about Josephine, it's never too late. And if a 96 year old can uh, adopt a plant-based diet, we all can. And um, if, if, uh, uh, there's one thing that I always consistently tell my patients. It's that um, there is a tremendous power in taking control of the way you eat to um, reverse and and really improve the quality of your life. Oh, absolutely. That message is so on point. So now let's break out your five tips to eat healthy during the pandemic. Whether you're 96 like Josephine or you're 36, what is tip number one, Dr. Nick? Well, so, and this is, I love talking about this because so many of my patients come to me and they say, oh, I can't, I can't just be plant-based. Even after they watch Game Changers or Forks Over Knives, it seems like a big, big lift for them. And so what the first thing I tell them and the first tip I have for you is focus just on a single meal. If making, you know, the whole change feels overwhelming. Think about which meal you want to focus on first. Oftentimes, breakfast works best, um, but if it's lunch or if it's dinner, whichever meal you want, but think about just a single meal and, and focus on making that meal plant-based um, rather than you know trying to do your entire diet if that feels too overwhelming. One meal at a time. That's key. I'm actually uh, going to be talking about that on the newest episode of the exam room podcast, but I'll, I'll give you details on that in just a little bit. What is tip number two, my friend? So tip number two is design the meal to be um, focused on foods you already love instead of trying to um, squeeze in a bunch of foods that you know are healthy, but you don't really like. Just brainstorm, what foods do I already love? Because I think a lot of people get 
trapped into thinking that if it's healthy, I have to not like it. So they assume, okay, it's got to have broccoli and cauliflower and um, eggplant for it to be healthy. But there's tons of foods that um, we all love that are healthy. And so it's just a matter of sitting down brainstorming what healthy plant-based foods do I love and thinking about how you can construct your healthy meal around those foods. I want to ask the uh, the people who are watching right now. So w- when you first went plant-based, what is the food that you never thought in a million years that you would like, but you actually did as you were starting to incorporate more and more things into your diet? What was the one, that one food that really just kind of blew your mind? I bet you we're going to get some wild answers. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Uh, what's, what's tip number three, my friend? Um, the third tip is have a plan for how you're gonna keep those foods around. Because what happens so often is people get started and they find something that they like, but they you know, they don't have the foods in stock regularly. So they don't eat it consistently and it doesn't become a habit. And really the key to um, getting all the benefits of a plant-based diet is making the change consistent. So I really encourage people to have a plan for how they're gonna keep these foods around all the time. And by designing the meal around foods you already love and keeping it simple, you're, it makes it easier to keep them around. Um, they're not thing, they're not foods that you kind of cringe when you're uh, passing through the shopping aisles, but, but that's the, that's the third tip. Keep the foods around, keep them in stock in your home. Oh, this list that is is coming up is just fantastic. I saw Allison Mahoney flash Brussels sprouts. I will second that, Allison, 100%. A lot of other people, tempeh, tofu, uh, plant-based milks, arugula. That's, you know, that's that's pretty cool. Keep them coming. This is great. Uh, what is tip number four? Tip number four is think about other resources that could make it easy. If there's something that is an impediment, a lot of us struggle with coming up with recipes that we like. Um, Get a cookbook. PCRM has tons of very simple recipes. Find the resources. They're out there. They're everywhere on Instagram, um, all over the internet. For some people, it's um, it's the cooking, the process of cooking. So get an instant pot or um, a scan pan so that you don't need to cook with oil. There's so many tools out there that make it easier. So figure out what tools, what resources you need uh, if you're struggling to make it easier. All right, let's bring it home now. Tip number five, save the best for last. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, tip number five is keep a positive attitude and remember that this is an experiment. So, so often I think that we have the experience and I see this with a lot of my patients. I say, oh yeah, it didn't work. And, you know, my follow-up question is always, so what did you try next? Because, you know, when we're kids, we always have the mentality of, okay, let me get up. Let me, let me see how I can make this work better. But I think as adults, we oftentimes give ourselves permission to try once. And then if it doesn't take a uh, stop. And so what I really encourage is that there really is no failure in this. It's just a, a process of experimenting, learning, and trying again. All right. So can you rattle those off for me? One through five, one more time, just for people who may be joining us in progress, as they say. Absolutely. So number one, focus on a single meal. Number two, pick foods you already love. Number three, keep the foods in stock. Have a plan. Number four, get help from resources or cooking appliances that make things easy. And number five is keep experimenting. Have a positive attitude. I love it. I think that those are all practical tips that a lot of people can use, especially as they're just getting going. You know, I, I mentioned that we were going to be talking about that on the exam room podcast. Uh, and, and I call it Vince goes vegan. You know, this is chapter one of his journey going plant-based. This is a guy who is middle-aged, unhealthy, increasingly overweight, stepped on the scale one day and was just appalled by the number that he saw. He said it was unacceptable. It was a number that he never thought in a million years that he would see. And then he got to thinking about his grandkids and how he wanted to be around for them. So what did he do? He picks up the phone and he calls his friend who's about 20 years younger than he is, but they've been traveling, doing business together for years. And when they would go out to eat, what really struck Vince was how his plant-based friend, his meals would look so much different than what it was that anyone else at the table 
was eating. And then Vince got to thinking about how much different Kamatni Rollins looked compared to everybody else at the table. Slim, trim, good physique, looks healthy. And so as he reaches this breaking point, he picks up the phone and he calls Kamatni. He says, Kamatni, I need some help. I need some help. And Kamatni gets a gauge on it. How serious are you? And Vince is, he's all in. But Vince is also, Dr. Nick, this is what I want to ask you about. Vince is kind of the everyman here. He's not the kind of guy that's going to go 100% whole food, plant-based overnight. He knows nothing really about this diet other than what he's seen on Kamatni's plate, but he's determined to get there. And so it's really a journey for him. And I, I really think that it underscores that you don't have to go 100% all in overnight in order to reap the benefits long-term. And I think that there's a lot of good reasons to take the plunge. And there's, you know, I love the PCRM's, um, you know, 21-day challenge. I think there's a lot of benefit to um, going fully plant-based because you see so much benefit so quickly. But we have to acknowledge that for some people, that's a really big challenge. And um, having different strategies, depending on what works for an individual, is uh, important. So, no, I I think that um, this is, it's really important that we continue figuring out how we can get people to adopt a more plant-based diet, whichever whichever changes they're prepared to make. you know, emphasizing that that it's possible to see tremendous benefits, even with, um, you know, more modest changes. Dr. Nick, uh, you're going to be sticking around, man. So let's go ahead and answer some viewer questions here as we open up the doctor's mailbag. You ready for a little bit of everything? Let's do it. All right. First question comes to us from Crystal Adams at 1217. She says, I need a list of sources for plant-based protein. I'm allergic to a lot of foods. Uh, So she says, can't eat mushrooms, can't eat onions, can't eat soy or beans. So she needs some other sources of protein. Can you help her out? Yes. um, Leafy greens are a great source of proteins. Um, So uh, the the saying that's very common in the plant-based community, community is beans and greens uh, as great sources of protein. They're also great sources of calcium by and large. So I would suggest if, you know, all the beans are off the table, maybe you could do lentils. Um, uh, If soy and beans aren't an option, though, and neither are lentils, if all legumes are off the table, then really focusing on getting lots of greens. You can eat a salad with every meal and you can really pile on different types of greens. Chuck mentioned arugula earlier, there's Swiss chard, there's spinach, there's kale, there's uh, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, broccoli. So there's a lot of cruciferous vegetables and greens that are packed with protein um, that will definitely um, get you to your protein goals. All right. Denise is next up on the exam room question from 1214. This is a question that gets asked quite a bit. I bet you get this one. Uh, Is it a good idea to take a multivitamin when eating a plant-based diet? Mm. Well, uh, great question. I, I personally don't believe that there's any evidence um, that multivitamins really support our long-term health. There may be good medical reasons to take a supplement, um, depending on your laboratory findings and what your doctor advises. Of course, we all as plant-based eaters need to be getting B12, not too much, but we do need to be getting B12 through a supplement or fortified foods. But B12 is really the only requirement for uh, someone who's following a plant-based diet. Multivitamins, there's a lot of evidence that uh, there are contaminants in multivitamins. Um, There are um, huge discrepancies in um, the amounts that they say they're providing and the amounts that are actually present there. Sometimes you can get above your daily requirements, sometimes below um, to to a degree that can be dangerous because not all vitamins are water soluble. Sometimes they're fat soluble, which means you'll store that excess. And if you're taking it every day, that can add up over time. So I generally say there's no good evidence that multivitamins are protective. Um, And so as, as far as I'm concerned, as long as you're getting your B12, you're in good shape, unless your doctor recommends an additional multivitamin 
or not multivitamin, but specific supplement for any medical reason that you may need one, whether you're pregnant, older, and need some specific fortification, what have you. Here's a question from Sheila. She wants to know, what advice can you offer as far as picking a wide array of fruits and vegetables to make sure that you're getting all of your nutritional requirements? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And, you know, there's a common theme here, which is, you know, when you're adopting a plant-based diet, obviously you're restricting to some degree. And so you want to make sure you're getting everything you need. The truth of the matter is that a lot of the concerns about getting a specific amount of specific nutrients has been um, amplified over the last several decades by the medical community because when we found out that certain vitamins and minerals are required for being healthy, we became very focused on trying to decipher exactly what's the right amount. And it turns out that that's a very individual question. Um, our bodies are incredibly resilient. If you are eating a diverse plant-based diet, um, in other words, you're eating whole foods that are minimally processed and you're doing that at every meal, you're going to be getting, you're going to be in great shape. You are going to be getting what you need. Um, I, I think that especially if you're eating, making sure to eat um, good sources of you know, protein through beans and greens, you're eating um, whole grains and not processed grains. Um, you're getting good fruit, um, which is so full of important minerals and vitamins as well. You're going to be in good shape. So I would uh, encourage you to feel great about your plant-based diet and not worry so much about specific nutrients because you're doing more than anyone else um, as far as diet is concerned to have a really, really um, nutrient-rich um, uh, diet. And, and so you're, you're in great shape. Got time for just a couple more here. Next one comes to us from Allison Mahoney at 1227. She says, I've been making my own plant-based milk at home for these last few months, especially soy and almond milk, but I'm concerned about additives and commercial brands, but am I losing too many nutrients when I squeeze the pulp out with the bag? So maybe she's worried about fiber there. Yeah. And that's a valid concern. Um, you know, I, I think you it, would it be better if you were eating um, just the almonds or, you know, if, if you're doing something similar with cashews or, or what have you? Yes, it would be. Um, the fiber is fiber is one of the most important nutrients. Ninety seven percent of Americans are deficient in fiber. The, the average fiber intake for the for, you know, Someone in the United States is around 14 grams and the the current recommendation is only about 30 grams. And that's way too low for colon cancer prevention. The recommendation should be closer to 50 grams. So um, that's a long way of saying, you know, no plant based diet is perfect. Um, and I don't think your goal should be perfection. Um, but if you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, you feel good, you're getting the, you're reaching your health goals. Um, I don't think you need to feel bad about, um, you know, having you know, almond milk. Um, that being said, the, the almonds um, as a whole food are, are better. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a cost benefit. Um, but again, no one does it perfect and you should feel really proud about um, where you're at. All right. Final question comes to us from Liz and it's perfect given the fact that you live in the land of oranges. She writes, how much fruit do we, uh, how much fruit do we need to eat to get our vitamin C for the day that would replace having to take a supplement? Okay. Well, um, that's a great question. It depends on the fruit. Um, fruits are incredibly um, variable. And it, it's a really tough question because it doesn't just depend on the fruit. It depends on the variety, where it's picked, how fresh it is. Um, greens are actually, in general, a much better source of vitamin C than even fruit. Um, so spinach, kale, um, Swiss chard are very rich in vitamin C. So um, you're, when you're eating a plant-based diet, again, you're getting um, way more nutrients than the average person who's eating, um, you know, the, the processed animal products. Uh, they, they, there's actually been a couple studies done looking at the nutrient, and I think Dr. Barnard was involved in one of them, looking at the nutrient richness of different diets. And the plant-based diet is far and away the most nutrient rich. So you're getting the vitamin C you need. That being said, um, you know, there are calculators online that can help you 
determine what the vitamin C content of a banana or strawberries are, and you can kind of approximate it that way. But um, again, I would emphasize, you know, focusing on eating fresh whole foods and um, your body will take care of the rest. Yeah, man, you mentioned chard, like people sleep on chard, you know, you've got spinach and kale up here. And then like chard is just like left way in the back there. People forget about it so often. I love chard. I love rainbow chard. Like it's so pretty. And then you put that in a salad and it tastes really good and just magic happens. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, in different contexts, you know, the greens really, um, you know, they, they all have their specific uses. So it's, it's really fun to experiment. Now's a great time, um, depending on where you live, to get out and start an herb garden because there's so much benefit to herbs. Um, start a salad garden, you know, baby romaine and all of that too. You know, it's it's um, it's really fun to start growing things, especially if you have kids and you want them to be eating healthier too. It's all good, man. Establish those healthy eating habits early in life. Uh, Dr. Nick Borgia, I appreciate you. Uh, your website is nickborgiamd.com. And I understand that you offer virtual health coaching? Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I've started doing as a result of this pandemic. Um, and I'm really loving it. Um, I offer a free initial consultation. So if there's anyone who wants some help, my practice focus is not just on plant-based eating, but also activity, sleep, um, stress reduction, because it really takes a whole lifestyle to you know, help people reach their best health. So that's what I focus on with the health coaching. And it's been a lot of fun. All right. And uh, you have a weekly newsletter as well. Yeah. If anyone wants to you know, go to my website and it's easy to sign up for my weekly newsletter, what I like to do is write concise summaries of the latest research around lifestyle and health, just so people feel like they're getting the most up-to-date news about how um, our lifestyle impacts our health. There's so much new research that's coming online that really reinforces the power of not just plant-based eating, but getting good sleep and, and resting, de-stressing, becoming more mindful, and of course, being active uh, throughout the day. Dr. Nick Borgia, greatly appreciate your time and your five tips today and all the answers to all the wonderful questions that the viewers have asked as well. You are the man, Dr. Nick. Well, it's great talking to you. Great seeing you, Chuck. And thank you so much for the opportunity. You know, it is not very often that there is a doctor who would rather not see his patients. Dr. Borgia would prefer not to see his patients at all. Why? Because he practices preventative medicine. Let's get you as healthy as you possibly can be so that you don't need to see the doctor. That's where his head is at. That is where his head is at, and that is why he is the perfect guest for the exam room. I had the opportunity to work with him a little bit when he came to Washington, D.C. for Food for Life instructor training and speaking with him. And one of the things that really struck me was just how passionate he was about this. And it wasn't just lip service. He took the time to fly all the way up from Florida to get this training so that he could take this information and apply it to the patients that he's working with down in Florida and then out to the community with his Food for Life classes. Preventative medicine, that is where he is at. And that is why Dr. Nick Borgia, you are the man. And if you would like the opportunity to work with any one of our plant-based doctors or dietitians at the Barnard Medical Center, you can certainly do that. Barnardmedical.org is the website to go to. They too put that food first approach into practice. They want to make sure that you take your health to that next level. They can help you address so many of those preventable chronic diseases, the ones that are tied directly to diet. So what can you do to help lower your risk of the things that we talked about on the show today? They can help you. So head over to barnardmedical.org or pick up the phone and call 202-527-7500 to schedule that appointment today. The cool thing is these telemedicine appointments they're now available in more than a quarter of the country. It's outstanding. That's outstanding. So barnardmedical.org, 202-527-7500. Susan, by the way, Susan would be happy to meet with you and talk more in depth 
about the dangers of dairy. Last thing I will ask before we get out of here today, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and subscribe to The Exam Room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. That's where you can find The Exam Room. And when you do, please hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star rating if you would be so kind, because every single good rating we get and subscription, that helps more people who need it the most find this potentially life-saving and certainly life-changing information. And that's going to do it for us today. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so very much for listening. And until next time, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based.